I originally was planning to be a professor. I had gone to uh, Stanford. I'd done my PhD. I had my sights set high for um, for that faculty position. Um, I didn't get my faculty offer from MIT, so I I you know kind of took that opportunity to think about what was really important in my life and what like why I had been striving to you know try to be a, a, a professor and a faculty member. And for me, it was always about impact. Originally, I was thinking that would be an impact in terms of being a being a professor doing great research having great students but then you know I, I realized that you could have an impact in different ways welcome to the mit catalyst a podcast series by the mit club of northern california each episode host julia Yu interviews mit alumni faculty and affiliates who are movers and shakers in the bay area Hi, everybody. I have here John Whaley, who is an entrepreneur, CEO and founder of Unify ID with us today. Could you tell us a little bit more about your ventures? Sure. I started one company um, out of Stanford. I was um, a PhD student there, and then we had started, uh, started one company. Eventually, um, that one got acquired and then started my second company, which is my, my current company, Unify ID. Can you tell us more about Unify ID? Yeah, so we do authentication. We can authenticate people based on passive factors, the way that they walk or their their unique behavior. It's called behavioral biometrics, and it's, it's much more convenient than using passwords or other traditional forms of authentication. Great. So starting Unify ID and being a second-time entrepreneur, what did you do differently? What did you learn from the first one? Gosh, I mean, uh, I think the first time around, we probably made just about every mistake that you could. Um, you know, one one of which is you know, one big lesson is is learning um, when you when you're raising money about uh, who to raise money from and and making sure you're well aligned with with your investors. Um, you know, this I, I think that that was the the biggest uh, the biggest single um, lesson from the first time around uh, that that we really incorporated the second time around. Great. Any other surprises? Yeah, I mean, so the first time uh, I was a founder and, and CTO, um, you know, which was quite different than the CEO role. The um, the 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 CEO role, you know, as I've discovered this time around, has been a lot. Um, it's been uh, a lot more comprehensive, and uh, you know, at the when I was a CTO, at the end of the day, I could always go home and then feel like I had accomplished something, or that that uh, that um, you know I I made a significant dent in, in what needed to get done. When you're the CEO, everything eventually just uh, falls falls up to you. Um, and so, regardless of how hard you work or how much you do, you 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 feel like you've never actually done enough. Um, and so, that was one big difference. I mean, the other difference is that in a CEO role, um, it's really much more about people management and about uh, recruiting and retaining and you know keeping those that team motivated. And so, it was much more about helping other people to be effective than uh, than me being effective myself. Do you like being a CEO? Yes, I, I mean, I wouldn't. I I didn't realize that I would uh, enjoy entrepreneurship um, so much, but but now I've I've done it, and and this is my second time around. I think you know, whenever whatever, however this uh, this one ends up, I think I'll be back for more. I think it's just uh, it's just there, there's a natural um, type of person that is naturally a builder and likes to build things, and you know can't can't stay away. I I've, I've discovered that that's my personality as well. So I think regardless of what happens here, I think I'll. The, the next, I'll, I'll be back for more regardless of whenever it happens. When did he catch the entrepreneurship bug? Was it at MIT or was it during your PhD program? Did you always know that you would have a startup? 
I didn't know. I didn't. I mean, I kind of fell into it. I um, I originally was planning to be a professor. I had gone to uh, Stanford. I'd done my PhD. I actually interviewed at MIT and and a, a few other places as well. Um, you know, I was really. I had my sights set high for um, for that faculty position. Um, I didn't get my faculty offer from MIT, so I I you know kind of took that opportunity to to. Um, think about what was really important in my life and what, like why I had been striving to, you know, try to be a, a, a professor and a faculty member. And for me, it was always about impact and, you know, wanting to have a big, uh, big impact. And originally I was thinking that would be an impact in terms of being a, being a professor, doing great research, having great students. But then, you know, I, I realized that you could have an impact in different ways. And so uh, the opportunity came along to actually join a, a company at the very earliest stages. Um, and that was my first company, Mocha 5. And, uh, you know, effectively what it was is, um, you know, there was a research project that was going on. We met with Vinod Kosla, who is, um, you know, founder of Kosla Ventures and uh, founder of Sun. And, you know, he basically said, here's $3 million, go build something cool. And so I thought that was a that was a really interesting opportunity. I was at this crossroads in my life. So then that's I, I decided to move forward with that, and it, I I haven't looked back. And the, you know, meanwhile, um, you know, I was able to go back. I became a visiting lecturer at Stanford, so I was able still able to get um, some of that. You know, interact with students and and go and teach classes and such. But you know, it it, it turned out very well. So you get the best of both worlds. You still get to be a builder, but you also still get to be a professor. So you get to see both the academia and the industry side of things. Yeah, and and you know, I think my my background is maybe a little bit atypical, especially for a, you know a, a startup CEO. Many of many uh, CEOs, you know, come more from the business background, sales background. I'm mine was much more of a technical background, and you know, again, doing my PhD and such. And rather than kind of shy away from that and, and try to pretend I was somebody I wasn't, I just fully embraced it. You know, I kept my PhD on my on my business cards. I would attend, you know, academic conferences and then go and talk about machine learning or security or these type of things, um, which has actually uh, paid off really well at our at my current company because not all not all CEOs are able to do that, right? And so the fact that I, I was able to then go and um, you know talk with people like at their level and then it was great for credibility in terms of we have we now have you know what are 15 peer-reviewed publications like in this space. So that's really a differentiator in terms of um, on the technology side when you look at, at some other companies trying to do similar things. And also for recruiting, like this is these are the type of places of the, the, the type of people uh, where the type of people that we want to um, recruit would typically congregate. And the fact I was able to go there and not as you know, um, and have a, have a career fair booth and, you know, try to attract people like that, but go and have a, a keynote speech or, you know, a, a technical presentation and then engage with people, uh, you know, technical people on their level, then, uh, that, that certainly has helped a lot. So, I mean, my, my biggest advice for anyone who's trying to do this is like, don't try to be, don't try to pretend to be someone else, just really embrace, um, who you are and what you're good at. And then people will, will naturally, and I can want, want to follow you and, and naturally, you know, uh, gravitate you, to you. And then you'll end up having more success than if you try to, pre, you know, pretend that you're something that you're not. Great advice. So when you recruit a team, one theme that we hear over and over again is getting the people right. What type of people do you look for? Is there a certain persona or do you have a certain framework for this? Yeah, this is something they put a lot of thought into, especially this being the second time around. I learned, learned a lot of lessons the first time around around 
you know, you really want to have the right DNA and the right gene pool in the company when you're early on, uh, because that really determines the future of the company and the success or failure of your, of your company is largely determined by those early employees, right? And, you know, you think about it almost in terms of, you know, in biology as well, if you have too much of a monoculture, it's too many of the same type of people, then, uh, then, you know, that leads to problems down the road, you know, because whenever you have, like, there's not enough diversity in your gene pool, then um, all traits get accentuated, like whether positive or negative. And then so, you know, ultimately what you want to try to build is a company that can incorporate a lot of different diverse viewpoints and experience and to do that in a way uh, where you can still be productive. So it's you want to have shared values, but then kind of, you know, not have everyone be exactly the same in terms of experience and background. And so when you look for people, I mean, one, uh, one natural thing when you're looking for people to join a startup is you don't want to find somebody who's just interested in doing one particular thing or is good at like one particular thing, because chances are, um, six months from now, um, you're not going to, you're, whatever you hired them for, they're going to have to do something else. So you want people who are going to be like autodidactic, like very just quick learners and be able to learn by themselves and, and be able to jump into a new area and then, uh, do really well. You also want to find people who they may not be there right, right now, but you know, you feel like that they have the potential to be the future leaders of the company because the people that you have earlier, the best, the best case scenario is that the people that you have earlier, the people that are going to be able to grow with the company and then they're going to be able to, you know, have those future leadership roles. Now that's not always the case. Like in case, sometimes you have people that, you know, they're very good for one particular phase of the company. And then, you know, as the company grows or matures, then they may not be the, the appropriate people, but you, it's always good to have, uh, to, to look for people who have that you feel like have that type of potential and you know many many times that people are looking that for that type of opportunity i mean if you can join a large company it's a long road to be able to you know reach up to uh, to the leadership ranks and something like that where whereas if you join in a smaller company it's really at the ground floor and then there's a much more of an opportunity to prove yourself and then have that leadership role um, in the future so who is your inspiration as an entrepreneur gosh uh there's um there's so many people that, um, especially in Silicon Valley, um, and we look at like, um, you know, yeah, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to name uh, just one. Um, yeah, I have to think I have to think about that a little bit. There's, um, but if you look at really the the ethos in in Silicon Valley, and this was this was um, somewhat true when I was in MIT. I mean, I, I graduated in 1999. Um, but I think it's becoming more and more true at MIT as well. There is like a, this a little bit of a culture of, of entrepreneurship that's especially true at Stanford and in Silicon Valley as well. And the fact that there's not only those, um, those individuals uh, there who just can't help themselves but go and go and start companies uh but also all the the people around them the entire supporting cast there's you know um there is venture capitalists there are lawyers there are office managers there's uh, like there's an entire ecosystem as well um that really makes um something like that possible right and then so i think a lot of the success or you know the the success stories that have happened in in Silicon Valley are um, are are due to much of that the entire ecosystem that is there. Great. Uh, and another theme that comes up with entrepreneurs is perseverance. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs when they are kind of at that precipice of what do I do next? Do I keep going? Do I shut down? Uh, do I pivot? This is um, this is a tricky tricky problem because 
Um, absolutely anything that's worth doing is to require perseverance and it's going to require, you're going to really have to, um, there's going to, there will be a lot of hard times, like period. There'll be times where it's, you know, it could be financial hardships. It could be hardships based on customers or product or, you know, a, a lot of things that, that, that can and will happen. You fully expect them to, to happen. Right. And, uh, you have, in order to be successful, you have to be able to work your way th through all of those. Right. Um, the, but the, on the flip side, there are, if you look around just in the, in, in Silicon Valley, especially, there's a lot of startups that, you know, that are not, that are not great. I mean, the products are not great and like, and the, because there's a lot of capital around and then it's not that, that hard to be able to find somebody to just give you some money. And then, and especially with your, you know, if, if it's a software startup, you don't really need that, like a huge amount of capital. And so you can kind of keep going and keep going. And so, you know, it's a little bit frustrating from uh, on the recruiting side where it's like, well, okay, we have a, we have a great company and a great idea and like, you know, gr track growing traction, all of this. Um, and then a lot of the talent ends up being locked up in companies where, okay, maybe if like, if fundraising was not quite as, uh, as free flowing, then those ones, um, would, would naturally die. And then, uh, then the people that are locked up in there would be able to then go on to do, um, better and greater things. So I think ultimately like this has to come, that these doesn't have to come from within you, within yourself, like realize that there absolutely will be hard times and, you know, and you don't have to back down like when they're, when you do have hard times, whether it's like you're running out of money or like, a customer contract, you know, blows up or something else happens, um, uh, really negative. You lose a key member of your staff, things like that. All those things will happen and you just have to be able to roll with the punches and keep going. But, you know, at some point then if you do say that if, if you're able to take an honest look at it and then say, okay, now, okay, it's, it's, this isn't working out. Now's the time to throw in a towel or more commonly is to, to pivot and to decide to like this, let this try a different tact. Right. And, um, it, when you're, in the middle of it, it's really, really hard to do that because you can't really see the forest from the trees, but it's really good to have people that you really trust that you can talk to and who will tell you things, you know, tell you things honestly. They say, why are you doing this? This isn't going to work. You know, it's very valuable to have those type of people. You know, you have they kind of called the kitchen cabinet. These are the people who it's like, you may have cabinet positions that are official positions. These are people who you implicitly trust and will go, uh, and will go to and, you know, try to get advice and they'll give you very honest advice. And so many times like having conversations with those type of people, then you'll be able to take a step back and then look at, uh, look at the whole thing from a, a wider lens and a wider perspective and then determine, okay, should I keep persevering or should I then, um, you know, pivot and, and try something new? Could you tell us a little bit more about the types of people in your kitchen cabinet that uh, people in your company outside your company investors friends family are a mix yeah these are people who are not within the company or in fact like have no real vested interest in the company uh, but have known uh, through the years and and really trust their judgment and sometimes you know it's it's people who had who were mentors or advisors in the past maybe these are people who um who had had some type of success and then, you know, are, are, you know, continuing to, um, you know, to engage with the community and give back and, uh, uh, these, uh, these types of things they, um, but, you know, I think it's important when you're talking about the, for those type of people that they're actually, these are actually different people and separate people than the people who are within the company or who are on your board or like kind of direct investors in the company, things like that, uh, because they're going to have uh, they're going to have their own their own perspective that's going to be colored by their involvement, existing involvement in the in your company. 
how do you find a co-founder? What is the secret sauce there? Yeah, it's uh, this is a really this is a really difficult thing to find like a good co-founder because the the number one reason why startups um, fail. I mean, number number one is they can't raise money like the first time around. The number two reason is basically founder to founder conflicts. Um, and so if you think about when you are going to found, start a company with someone, it's almost like you're getting married. I mean, you're probably spending more time with your co-founder than you would with your actual spouse. So, um, it's, a, it is important to, to approach and just to, you know, if you just meet somebody and think, oh yeah, this seem this person seems to be interested in the same kind of things. Let's go start a company together. Um, that may not work out well. I mean, you may, you may end up uh, not on speaking terms or so the the best uh, the best results they've seen is is ones that where people had worked uh, together before I mean so something where they had maybe they worked at the same company they worked on similar projects you know what it's like to work together you know like it's a very important when you have uh, co-founders that everyone knows what their role is if you have two people that are you know for example two people that are both highly technical and there's any kind of question around oh who should be in charge of engineering or technology or the architecture and you have two people who are both very good that's uh, that's not a good recipe for success so what I'm hearing is it's good to have co-founders who have complementary skills, not clones of each other. Yeah, uh, complementary skills, we have to have a shared set of values. And then you have to have a very um, good understanding before you even get started of what is each person's role and then and and what is expected of them. What do you advise against friends starting companies together? Uh, not, not necessarily. I mean, th- those can, those can sometimes be people that you, uh, that you know very well. Somebody who's like, you only know socially, like may seem like, oh, this, this person's really cool. And like, I feel like I can get along with them. Starting a company is a totally different thing. So, um, it's much better to have an experience where you've actually worked together on something where you've actually, you've worked on the same team or you've, uh, you've collaborated, you know, closely on something. So you really understand what it's like to work with them. Because outside of not being able to like raise that that first that or that next round of funding, the the those co-founder issues are the number one reason why why startups um, end up failing. And it doesn't really have to be that way. I mean, uh, it's just uh, you know when you have people and personalities and egos get involved, then that's where uh, you know there's there's a lot of potential potential landmines. So I just say be careful like if you're going to start a company. The other piece is don't be afraid. Like if you if you have a great idea and you don't have another co-founder to do it with um don't don't be afraid to just jump in and and do it yourself you don't need to have multiple co-founders in fact like things are often a lot easier if you're just a solo founder and so don't don't be scared to go and and jump and jump in and do it don't feel like well i i have this idea so i need to find someone else there are plenty of success stories of, of individual founders who have gone on to uh to build great companies what is your entrepreneurship secret sauce my, uh, so I think my, my entrepreneurship secret sauce is, um, like I mentioned before, it's just really be yourself and then, and embrace, um, who you are. Don't try to be someone else. Um, like, you know, lean into your strengths. If you're a technical person, be as, as the, the best technical person that you can possibly be. If you're going to, if you're on the business side or partnerships or sales, like be the best that you possibly can be, um, in those areas. And don't try to pretend to be someone else because people ultimately see through it. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be successful for you. Thank you so much, John Whaley. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the MIT Catalysts. This episode was hosted by Julia Yu and produced by me, Irina Fisher-Huang. 
Special thanks to our guests, John Whaley, for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks also to the MIT Club of Northern California, which sponsors this podcast. Make sure to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We hope you enjoyed our first MIT Catalyst episode of the new decade, and make sure to tune in to our upcoming episodes. We've got a great slate of interviews lined up for 2020 that you won't want to miss. Until next time, we're the MIT Catalysts. Thank you.